I appreciate uh, being here with you all today. There's many uh, friends I know, and there's some new faces I've met, so I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, Hannah and I were thinking that we were married here three years ago on Wednesday, so it's wonderful to be back with you guys and uh, to be here. I'm now over at uh, Free Methodist, and I lead worship over there, so it's great to be here and uh, to bring the word today with you all. We're going to be starting um, in Mark 8, starting in verse 22. This, this miracle of Jesus is, always interests me, and you'll see why. Then they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to Jesus and asked him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him outside the village. Then he spit on his eyes, placed his hands on his eyes, and asked, Do you see anything? Regaining his sight, he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Now, why this interests me is it's a two-stage healing. It's a two-stage healing. Every other miracle we see Jesus that he just instantly heals someone, but this time he doesn't. He attempts it the first time. I don't know if he just wasn't feeling it that day or what, right? And then he has to do it a third time. And you question, why is this there? Jesus could have healed him if he wanted to on the first time, but he doesn't. Mark, the writer of Mark, records it as a two-stage healing. And maybe there's something there that we can learn from that today. You see, we find ourselves often in the second stage of life. We see, we're not blind, we've come to Christ, we believe in Him, we believe in who He said, but sometimes we don't see things as clearly as what we sometimes feel like we should. So we're not quite in the third stage, we don't see everything clearly, but like this blind guy, we see shapes and figures. Partially that's because our perspective is partial, right? So I was reminded of this last night when I was shaving my head and nicked myself, and I thought, well, it still needs shave, so I went the other way, and then just blood everywhere. And I, I told Hannah, I said, I can't see the own back of my head, so you're going to have to help me out here. Our perspective is partial, but at the same time, we understand that God's perspective is, is universal in some ways. When we talk about the will of God, we often find ourselves in the second stage, we may know generally what God's will is, but specifically for our lives, it's not like we see it as clearly as what we wish sometimes. Sometimes we see shapes and figures, but we're still somewhere in between. We're not blind, but we have an, a general idea. At the same time, the question is, are we honest like this blind man and kind of like, Jesus, it didn't, <laughs> it's not exactly clear to me right now what's going on in front of my eyes, but maybe you could help me. We live in the second stage often when it comes to the will of God. Some things just aren't clear. Scripture talks about this. 1 Corinthians 13, 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. There's not a fullness to what we say sometimes. Sometimes when we speak on behalf of God, there's not a fullness there but a partiality. Or think about Job 41:11. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who is first given to God that God needs to repay him? The answer here is no one. Or Isaiah 40, 13. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? <laughs> no one. So when we talk about the will of God today, we can say, can we see? Absolutely. But do we see clearly 100% of the time? 
Not always. But understand what this means for us today, is that the pressure is off. Can we just take a deep breath in? It's okay. It's okay that we don't always know what God's will is in a situation. It's okay that we don't always know what God's will is in a moment, in the future. It's okay. In fact, sometimes God, I think, expects us not to get it right. That sometimes he just has grace on us and says, it's okay. It's okay. And that's an okay place to be. So we're in the second stage when it comes to the will of God often. And God expects us to miss some things. But yet we still act like sometimes that we have clearer sight than those friends around us. So we might say, if there's a tragedy, as we've been encountered with uh, week after week, we might say, well, here's the solution. If we just did this, then everything would be okay. Or if uh, someone is... Uh, we, we encounter a brother or sister who's sinning, we say, well, here's how you fix it. Or if we see a Christian out of line, we might say, you're wrong for these reasons, and here's why. But very rarely do we step back and say, what's God's will? How would God fix this issue that I'm facing? How would God instruct those people I love? How would God do this? What does God want to do? We're quick to jump as if we're living in the third stage, but we don't stop and we don't ask enough. If we think about uh, a national tragedy like 9-11 or something, I remember pastor after pastor getting up in front of people and saying, this is what it means. This is why it happened. But could they see clearly? Very few pastors would get up and say, I don't have clarity. I, I want to have clarity I don't possess on this subject. They might have clarity, but I don't, and that's okay. And we find ourselves in a dishonest position a lot of the time. <clears throat> Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says there's two great errors when it comes to the will of God. We're dishonest, and we try to tell people the will of God when we don't see clearly. That's the first error. I remember after uh, Hannah and I were married, we went, on a, uh, we went on a honeymoon in Gatlinburg, and we were deciding what to do, and she said, hey, I want to go to the Titanic Museum. And honestly, I was like, I do not want to go. That's just going to be a ton of money for, for nothing, a gimmick. I don't feel like going. But we compromised, and we went anyways. So you can't say I haven't learned in three years because that's what happened. So we went, and as you're coming in, uh, you may be familiar. They hand you these, uh, these tags that tell you who you are and how you might have lived or died and those type of things. So Hannah gets one. She's like third class or something. I don't know. And I get David Blair. Now, if you like history, um, David Blair might be a name you know because he was infamous. Uh, this man was a captain on the Titanic. And at the last second, he gets called off the ship. And he runs down, runs off, and the ship leaves the port. And then he feels in his pocket, and he realizes that he has the key. The key to what? The key to a lockbox on the crow's nest that had what in it? Binoculars. So then we find these captains of the ship driving the ship blind. And David Blair lived with guilt for the rest of his life because he thought, what if I would have passed that key on to those ship captains? Would they have seen of what's the head? But I think this is an image for what Jesus talks about when he said, the blind lead the blind. And when we're blind and we try to lead people, there's casualties along the way. 
that sometimes we lead people astray, and there's casualties there when we're dishonest and tell people about the will of God. So there's something about a radical honesty when it comes to God in the first stage and just say, I don't know exactly, and that's okay. But the second great error that we, that we see is that we act as if we have no hope and we'll never see. And that is the second great error is that we say, okay, I don't see clearly, but perhaps I'll never see. But that's just untrue. We can come to know the will of God. We can come to uh, where our faith will be our sight. We can come to learn what the will of God is in a situation. But we're somewhere in between those two poles. This is why Paul in Romans 11, and this is a long one, so stay with me. In 11.33, this is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has first given to God that God needs to repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to the present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is his good and well-pleasing and perfect will. So Paul begins this section saying, Oh, the depth and the knowledge and riches of God, who can, who can know what God is thinking? Who can know God's will? But then Paul ends this section by saying, but we can tr be transformed by the renewing of our mind to know the will of God. But we question, how can this be? How can we be transformed? One of the things is that we can have the, the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So when we come to believe in Christ, we can receive the mind of Christ. But at the same time, what's playing there is the Holy Spirit has to be at work. And Pentecost was just last week. The Holy Spirit has to be at work to transform our minds, to see things differently than what we see, to bring us into that third stage where we're still in the second, to see clearly what's ahead of us and what God intends out of a situation. But there's something else here, more than just second and third stage. There's something that Paul's talking about is often when we think about the will of God, we're often concerned with what and when. So what will you do after high school? What will you do after college? What will you do after um, you leave this job? What will you do when you grow up? And what will you do after you retire? <laughs> but Romans... And Paul seems more concerned with how and who when it comes to the will of God. So these questions would become, who do you want to be when you grow up? Who do you want to be? Who do you see yourself as in 10 years? Who would you be if you stayed at your job? What is it making you turn out to be? And who would you be if you left your job? Who would you become? And who would you be if you retired? They're different questions. But Paul seems concerned with how we do what we're doing and not just what we do. Look at it. So therefore, present your bodies as a sacrifice. So Paul's saying here, everything you do on a daily basis, grocery store, 
uh, sitting on your couch, thinking, um, beauty salon, hanging out with your family, your studies, everything you do on a daily basis, he says, present as an offering of worship, and just maybe you might align yourself with the will of God. So let me give you an example. As I feel like I'm in the right what. So I'm pursuing ordination. I'm in seminary and all these things. And I feel like what I'm doing, fine. Lord has called me to. But in the back of my mind, I think if I did all these things the wrong way, if I did the how the wrong way, then I think you'd throw out the what entirely. If I was a pastor who was impatient, unkind, unloving, harsh, manipulative, sinful, then I think God would kind of look at that and say, you're in the right what, but you're doing it the whole wrong way. And he might just throw out the what entirely and say, you're not being who I asked you to be, although you're in the right what. So where we're concerned with the what, God seems concerned with, well, who are you in this situation? And maybe if you changed who you are, you would align yourself with what I'm doing already. So the question becomes is how do we align ourselves with the will of God? How do we put ourselves in a position to change how we're doing what we're already doing? Well, there's four points here that I see in this section. The first is dependency. Dependency. God has to know what's going on in some way, so I needed to be dependent upon him to interpret the situation and not myself. Sometimes I think to myself, I'm like a a planner, I love the check boxes and the things. I think if God just laid it out for me and said, this is what I want you to do and when you want to do it, I'd just be going through and checking off my boxes. Did that, did that, did that. All right, bless me now. But I think God would, would say that I was trusting too much in the process and not in him. And maybe that's sometimes why we're unclear about what's going on right in front of our eyes. But this dependency upon God puts us in a position where we could hear the voice of God if we, if we were listening. So it's not just what we're doing. One of my favorite uh, preachers used to say, you can tell God what he's to do in his own universe, but uh, until you have your own universe, can you tell God what to do in his universe? Because we sometimes do that. Who can counsel the Lord, but we'll say, well, God, you should have done it this way. God, you should, why do you do it like that? I would have rather had it like this. But then I realize I don't have my own universe. In my mind sometimes, maybe, but not in practicality. So there's this dependency upon God, the maker of everything. Paul says, from him and through him and to him are all things, all things. So there's this dependency, a heart-level dependency upon God and what he wants to do. And that's how, how we should approach things which is more than just what we're doing. The second thing that God seems to care about, and that Paul writes about, is our characters. So God cares about how you do what you do, not just what you do. How are you approaching the situations that lie ahead of you? How are you doing in those situations? How are you responding in those situations? God seems concerned about so example in our lives, uh, my wife would be here. She was at first service. She left. She has to go down to Tennessee and make sure this McAllister's store passes an in inspection, whatever that means. I don't know. But in our lives, this has been a tension point for us. So she's traveling usually uh, a whole month. She'll be gone this whole month. 
And to me, I'm at home, and if you've been there before, you know, it's like I'm taking care of this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And I see all these obstacles that lay ahead of me, and that's what I see them as, things I have to overcome, things I have to overcome. And then the Lord really convicted me and was like, maybe these aren't obstacles, but maybe those are opportunities that I'm using to shape you into someone different. And I really started changing how I look at the will of God because sometimes we see these sufferings and these things in front of us as obstacles we have to overcome rather than opportunities that God can use uh, to shape us because he takes every evil and bad and turns it to good. Maybe these are opportunities that lie ahead of me and not just obstacles. Maybe God is crafting me into a different person than who I was before I went through this. The third of these is, is well, before I move on, there's, we have to talk about the holiness here because God says we must be holy. And when we think about our character, if we deliberately continue sinning, and don't change who we are, and don't submit these things to God, then Scripture seems to be clear, like from this passage in Isaiah, where we can become bitter, and we can become to have hardness of heart. And then when God speaks to us, it just ricochets off of us, and we don't even listen anymore. Something I ask myself often is, if I don't listen to the voice of God when He asks me to do something, would He continue to ask me to do it because He knows I won't do it? And that's a real convicting thing for me if I don't listen and do what God is asking me to do. But we must throw, throw off any sin that, that hinders us so that we can hear the voice of God clearly and it won't ricochet off of our bitter and hardened hearts. The third of these is love. Now, Paul goes on here to talk about the law, which we didn't read because I already had a long section for us, but... It's absolutely true, it needs to be said, that God wouldn't ask us to do something that is outside a known commandment. Jesus gives us clear commandments. The Ten Commandments are very clear about what we must do and what we don't do. But some Christians see that as the limits. But that's not the limits of what we do. That's just the beginning. Sure, I may not, uh, you know, curse a friend, uh, but do I love them? And that's why Paul says that love is the fulfillment of all the law. That's not just about what you don't do, but about what you do. It's not just about staying away from things, but charging forward in love. Sure, God won't ask us to do something that is outside his known commandment, but the question we have to ask ourselves is not, am I following the commandments, but am I loving? Am I loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Am I loving my neighbor as myself? Because Jesus says the whole, the whole thing hinges upon these two things. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaved as if you love someone, you will present, presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find yourself disliking him more. If you do a man good, uh, in turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. So it's not even about a feeling. Do I feel like this is the will of God? That's not even a question when it comes to love. How about I act like I love my neighbor, and then I will align myself with maybe what God is asking me to do. So the question when it comes to love is not just am I following the commandments. You absolutely should. But am I loving the Lord, and am I loving the na my neighbor as I do those commandments? So Jesus commands us here at the end, we're going to take communion. He 
commands us to take communion. But am I doing that with all my heart? Am I doing that with all my soul, my mind, my strength? Because I can do something and follow a commandment without love. And Paul would throw out the whole thing. If we don't have love and how we're doing what we're doing, then I don't think, even if we were doing the right thing, I think God would say, it's not aligned with my will. It's not aligned with my character. And the fourth thing is this, is that we have hope. Now, as I said, we're in the second stage, but one of the great errors is that we never believe we'll be in the third stage, but we have hope that we will see the will of God, that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, as Scripture says. We will see the will of God. But you and I today probably have a few things in our lives when it comes to the will of God that just don't make sense. And maybe you've had a moment where it's like this span of your life, this didn't make sense, and you got on the other side, and we say hindsight's twenty twenty, and now it just makes sense, that's great. I think that's seeing the will of God in the land of the living. But sometimes I think God uh, allows us to sit in those things, to shape us, to mold us, but in the end, our faith will become our sight. In the end, every wrong will be made right. In the end, every injustice will be brought underneath the throne of God and will receive justice. So we will see the will of God. We have this hope. And that's what Paul talks about here. I was uh, at my parents last night who are here today. And uh, a few years ago, they lost uh, a house in the fire. And a whole, the whole fire burned the whole thing down. So I was sitting on their porch yesterday with my mom, and I was thinking, and they had this tree planted right where my bedroom was. But I thought when it came to the will of God, not only did we, did we have questions, like why did this happen, but also we had people on the other side who acted like they knew why this happened and would tell us, which is just the most destructive thing we could have done. But we still don't know why this happened. And maybe you have things like that in your life of just, why did this happen? Why did this person die? Why did this suffering, why this, why this uh, suffering upon me, upon my body? Why, why do I deal with this disease? And sometimes we have to wait and we have this hope that we will know one day, maybe in this life, maybe in the next, why those things happened. And our faith will become our sight. Things will be set right. Things will make sense to us. And we have this hope. And we have this hope. So we hope to have encouragement this morning that although we may not see the will of God, maybe we feel like we're living in the second stage, God is bringing us into the third to see clearly what exactly is happening. Little by little, as the Holy Spirit transforms our minds to see different. Now, when we look to Jesus, we find that he did the perfect will of God. He did the perfect will of God. But how many of those in the fold came and said, this is not the Messiah? A guy who suffers, a guy who serves, he's supposed to be victorious. This is not the will of God. But Jesus did exactly what the Father had asked him to do. And sometimes I feel like in my life, God asked me to do things, and he doesn't bother telling anyone else what he asked me to do. <laughs> Because then 
many who we call loved ones will try to interpret and tell us. And sometimes we should listen, but sometimes we should discern and pray for more transformation to see clearly. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful that you are transforming us day by day, Lord. We are thankful that we have hope that things will be set right, Lord, that things will make sense. Lord, I know there are uh, hurts and hangups and things in this room today, Lord, but we pray that these things would shape us. We don't always get to choose how they shape us, Lord, but we pray that they shape us to look more like you, that we can become people and children of God, that we can learn to love God, love you and love our neighbor. We're thankful for your son, for a sacrifice, Lord. We're thankful to do this act in remembrance of him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.